welcome everybody. We are here tonight for an, another incredible Living Chassidus event. Um, for those of you who are new here, Baruch Hashem, Living Chassidus has been for around in Crown Heights for almost 10 years. We're like a month and a half short of our 10 year anniversary. So save the date that's coming up. We're gonna make a big, big event and we're very, very excited. Um, the goal of Living Chassidus is two-pronged, the living, the chassidus, and the, the combination of both. So here in Crown Heights, Baruch Hashem, Crown Heights is a central, um, it's the center location for Chabad Lubavitch movement. And we are the hub, we have 770, and we're right by the aisle. And this tends to be the place where many singles come um, to spend those the, the time period after seminary or after yeshiva, and then here's the place where they find their spouse, Be'ezus Hashem, it should be very soon for everyone. And throughout the last 10 years, our goal has been to be that, in a certain sense, community center, Chabad house style location, where we help women, young women and newly married women through these beautiful stages in life, the bubble of seminary tends to pop at some point or another and then we live in the outside world life and here we are so we create classes we create support um, we create community and one of the things that we've seen over the years is that during this time period many women spend it very focused on getting married or very focused on their career um, and hopefully also focus, very focused on keeping up their spirituality and their connection and the relationship with Hashem. But many times we reach the next level in our lives and we kind of wish that somebody would have told us. Somebody would have told us about women's health. Somebody would have told us about, um, somebody would have told us about women's health. Somebody would have told us about pelvic floor, about pregnancy, about nursing, about postpartum. And many times we spend that time period kind of learning fresh and brand new as we're living through those experiences. So our goal with the life skill series that we run during the fall and the winter seasons are to really give women the life skills that they so desperately need and not every and not many people are really talking about um, especially not the singles. And I believe, and through the support of our mashpiyam and through the support of our rabbanim, we have been encouraged to continue to give this information for singles, newly married, and for, I mean, in this call, from what I understand, we also have some parents that are curious. So we have some lots of interesting, curious souls. Um, but the goal of Life Skill Series is really to give you the skills and give you the information now when you're single so you can think about it and process it and then feel empowered as soon as you reach that stage in your life. So I want to give a huge, huge thank you to all of our donors and our sponsors. You guys are what make Living Chassidus run. So really any schuss of any woman learning anything through us is all thanks to your incredible donations and a special shout out to um, our donors who are monthly. So it's called a high club. Um, so they donate a certain amount monthly. Um, for tonight, we also have, give me one second, I'm just gonna pull it up. Um, tonight, we also have 
Uh, I apologize, I didn't have this open before. Um, tonight is also partially sponsored um, for schos of the engagement of Chai Moshka Bas Menach Mendel, no, Chai Moshka Bas Rachel Malka and Menach Mendel Ben Simalea. May they be blessed with a home overflowing with joy and may they bring joy to others. Um, so a huge, huge thank you for that. Now, tonight's incredible guests are, um, one of them has actually been my friend for several years now, thanks to um, a connection with my home birth midwife, Kristen. And she, at, out of the blue, she said, I have this amazing person who I feel like you'd connect so well and she, she, it's funny to say it this way, but I think she made a great friend shidduch. And Judy Ribner and I have known each other for a few years now, and I absolutely love her, everything, her personality and her knowledge and her background. And I think it's such a breath of fresh air to meet from midwives who know the lingo, who know the lifestyle, who know um, what our life is all about. And bring that level of comfort into the midwifery world within the from community. Um, and through Judy, I got to meet her other um, co-workers, part, uh, work partners, and now we have the great schos to hearing from them. So the topic for tonight is so apropos, um, grill the midwives, get your most burning questions answered. And we're featuring the midwives from the Holistic Midwifery, from Holistic Midwifery New York, Judy Ribner, Rachel Cohen, Malki Schuler. And we're so, so happy to have you here. Okay, so firstly, thank you so much, Michal, for inviting us because it's an incredibly privileged experience to be professionals who have unique professional backgrounds, right? We've even seen hospital births and we've attended home births, both. And to share with women who are being surrounded by a surrounded by a in a hospital in a hospital excited to share. So we can jump right in. Should we each introduce ourselves? And okay. So I'm Judy. I am a home birth midwife. I today I was actually born. It's my birthday. My mother birthed me with Lamaz. I'm very grateful. I was a product of a peaceful birth and I went to nursing school. I then went to midwifery school at SUNY Downstate where I met Malfi Schuler. That was quite a number of years ago. And then I went to NYU where I got my doctorate, <laughs> a doctorate in nursing, and it was focused on midwifery research. So hi, I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm giving it over to Malfi and Rafi, my sister midwives who have I've had the most humbling privilege of attending so many powerful, peaceful births with. When Hashem shows up, it's in their merit, not mine. So I, I want to give it over to them. Happy birthday. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize today was your birthday. I feel terrible. Right. Did you realize? I think I knew that because of, you know, from the I knew it. I just didn't realize today was, I didn't do any documentation today. So I didn't know that yet. <laughs> Um, oh, okay. Um, I'll go next. You want to go next, Brad? Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. okay. Go ahead. I'm Malki Schuler. 
nice to meet you all. I, um, yeah, I'm a midwife um, who attends births at home and I love it. Um, I met Ruchi first, actually. Ruchi and I were really rental delivery nurses together at NYU Hospital. I worked there for seven years. Um, I went right from nursing school to labor and delivery nurse because I knew that I wanted to work with women having babies. Um, and then I went to midwifery school while I, while I was working um, as a nurse. And then now I'm a home birth midwife and I love it. And um, I was just saying the other day, I had gone like a little bit of time without being at a birth. And then I attended a birth and it was like, oh, thank God, you know, um, we were just, you know, it birth fills you up. It just brings life and light and it's a, a real honor and a privilege and attending women in their homes is just so right the first birth I attended with Rochi and Yehudis um we were standing in someone's living room and like I mean in someone's bedroom I'm sorry and she and she gave birth and I'm just like looking over and it's like a from woman three from midwives her husband's in the corner davening like I just looked around and I just like I felt it to my core I'm like this is how babies are supposed to be born like why does like why does anything else exist it just like into my like insides I was just like this is how it's supposed to happen and then ever since that birth it was just a, like that set me on the path to I have to do this so I love it and I'm excited to be here okay I guess I'll go next um I'm Rochi Cohen and I am also a midwife been a midwife for about four and a half years and um, I got my start as a nurse actually in the pediatric ICU and then I joined Maki in labor and delivery and I worked um, labor and delivery for a little bit. I worked as a midwife at NYU and in a different private practice and then I got connected with Yehudis about well, over two years ago and she invited me to start attending births with her and it kind of I guess snowballed from there to uh, you know now working together full-time and it really is it's like once you go into home birth like it's hard to go back you know it's hard to feel like you can you know you know go back into a different setting because it's like like Maki's saying it just feels like the right place to be and it's it's sometimes hard to explain to people until they experience it themselves um and I was just talking to my husband today about it and he was mentioning to somebody about you know home birth and and there's still just so much mis not even misinformation I think like like Michal was saying just lack of information like people don't know what a midwife is, what the training is, what we do. Um, we're often confused with doulas and we love, absolutely love, love, love all doulas and working with doulas, but we're just, we are, you know, a different profession. We have master's degrees, we're trained in, you know, in emergency skills. So just for people to understand, you know, what it is really that we're doing is really important. Oh, you're muted again. <laughs> Okay, I, I muted myself, so there shouldn't be an echo. Uh, Michal, how would you like us to do this? There were a number of questions, important questions that you submitted to us in advance that we all have the list of. Should we go through one by one? Go through it? Or would you like us to first give you a overview of pregnancy, birth, and what home birth is? Maybe we should do just a general overview and then jump into the questions? Okay, sure. So, I mean, I would, Malki, do you want to start? Rachi, do you want to start? I don't know why I'm the one always starting. Should we talk about just- With an overview, you said, of what we do? 
Yeah, and maybe if you can speak, Malki, of your experiences also, you could run in then to the opposite of emergencies and just do a little bit of a contrast, right? Sure. So what do we do? We do a lot. Um, a lot of people are, oh, you're a midwife, so so you they they have the baby and then you bring them to the hospital or like I get like there's so like like Ruthie said there's so many questions about it and I love the questions. You're in midwifery school. What does that mean? What do you, what like what do you do? What's what's a midwife like? So I'm excited that we get to like share. Um, so what do we do? We care for women. Um, midwives can care for women from you know adolescence through the whole lifespan. Um, our practice tends to focus more on the um, you know a prenatal, intrapartum, postpartum care. So that's like women come to us when they're pregnant, um, and we care for them throughout their pregnancy. They don't need to see any other healthcare provider or no doctor. They have to see us, the midwife. So we see women, we see okay. women better. Okay. Um, we see women throughout pregnancy. They don't need to see anybody else. We um, care for them completely. If we need to refer them um, for, you know, for something, then we can, we have collaborative relationships with, you know, other professionals within the you know obstetric world but um we see our our clients and then when they're ready to have their baby we're there for them um throughout the whole process whether that's like a couple weeks of on and off uh, you know um, maybe i'm in labor maybe i'm not in labor i think i'm having my baby i'm for sure having my baby i'm not having my baby two weeks later having your baby you know whatever that process looks like um and then we're there for the birth we stay after the birth we assess the baby we're licensed to care for neonates up to you know the first 20 days of life um so we do you know a comprehensive assessment on the baby we give lots of postpartum support so we're on the phone with our clients um you know if someone gives birth at 3 a.m you know by 10 a.m that morning we're checking in how are you feeling how's everything going that night the next day you know within a day or two we come see them in person check out mom check out baby um and then you know we touch base every so often in the postpartum period, um, and then you know any contraception conversations, discussions, IUDs, diaphragms, things like that. We can you know um, help our clients with and insert and order and whatever they need. Um, and we also can do well, woman do and we tend to spend most of our time with the pregnancy and the birth. But um, as midwives, we can so we can kind of do uh, all that and. Um, I can pass the baton to Ruchi. You want to describe why we're different than doctors? <laughs> I'll mute myself so that, I don't, myself so that I don't cause an I can go grab. I'll just, I guess I'll just talk about the training. Um, there are different pathways to midwifery, um, but in New York State, um, all midwives are like, do have to have a master's degree. Um, and most midwives are certified nurse midwives, which means that they have a bachelor's in nursing and a master's in midwifery. There's a direct entry program where you could become a midwife without being a nurse first, but it's still a master's degree. Um, so everybody is definitely at a, you know, has a high level of training, a few years of BA plus, you know, two to three years of midwifery school. Um, there's a certain amount of births and, you know, prenatal visits, postpartum GYN visits and everything that we have to do during our training in order to be considered, you know, competent in, in midwifery. So that's just important to know in terms of the training. Um, why are we different than OBs? It's a, basically 
it's juxtaposing the midwifery model of care versus the medical model of care. Um, the medical model of care when it comes to pregnancy is when we um, look at childbirth and pregnancy as kind of a pathological state, an illness, a problem waiting to develop. And so a lot of um, the visits and also, you know, the monitoring during labor and postpartum is really focused on trying to find a problem, treat a problem, um, always being like, always being concerned that something is going to go wrong. And also feeling like the more you do, um, like you are, we were talking about the other day that you are, you as the doctor, the provider are keeping the woman and the baby safe and you have to do more and you have to supervise more and like more is better versus the midwifery model of care really gives the power back to the woman and we we talk about you know pregnancy and birth as normal physiological processes that we are you know created to do and that um as midwives we're here to support that process not to save you not to save your baby but just to be there as a supportive guide in the pregnancy and our goal really is on some level to do to do less you know to not mess with things like because most of the time if you just you know leave things alone and don't intervene things will develop smoothly whether it's labor or pregnancy or other things it's just um in that sense we kind of believe that less is more not that we need to monitor we still monitor when we you know, when is in labor we're obviously there you know obviously to to um to supervise and to be there, but really the lechatchila the is to is to do less and to just observe and support versus intervening and doing, I would say. You each gave so much information. I, I'm trying to think what else I can add. It's exactly what Rachi described and what Malachi described. Like, birth is inherently self-sufficient. For most people, if they didn't interact with a professional, their bodies would grow and birth a baby completely healthily and safely. Now we monitor, so we honor the wisdom of the process. And we recognize, like Rachi said, that when you treat it as a miracle and don't intervene, that's usually when it works best. But we also are clinically astute and attentive and screen all women to identify the minority of them who do develop a complication and benefit from a higher level of care or benefit from a level of intervention that we can provide. We don't have this long list of mothers whose lives we saved and we don't have this long list of babies whose lives we saved. Birth is not that dramatic. Like, we usually, we were at two birth, we had two women give birth with our practice this week, right? Like we usually, the births just happen and it's a gentle, uneventful, peaceful experience where the woman is upright and mobile during her labor, gets into a shower as she pleases, eats and drinks as she pleases, doesn't get a routine IV. We listen into the baby once every 30 minutes during the labor process and in the second stage of labor once every 15 minutes, unless there was something in the heart rate that indicated we should listen more closely. 
And when it comes time to the birth, she births by her instincts. She's not directed how to push. She gets into the position of her choice. We do our utmost to prevent tearing so that it's not common that we need to stitch somebody up. And when the baby's born, we hand the baby to its mother. Now, there can be situations where intervention becomes indicated in a home birth setting even though nobody created the trouble, even though it wasn't our interference that set the person up for the complication. There can be within the natural process a time that it doesn't work perfectly. And that's why we're there. We're there for those unlikely events. Well, we're there for everyone so that we could give them that support and reassurance and be a loving presence. But from a safety perspective, we're really there for a small minority of the people well, only a small minority of our mothers will actually need us skills-wise. And when we are needed, we step forward, right? So we come equipped with first-line medication for a hemorrhage if someone's bleeding too heavily, second-line medication, third-line medication, IV. We have neonatal resuscitation equipment. We have the skills and experience that if we needed to resuscitate, we would. Like if we needed to help a baby breathe, we would. We bring a birthing center worth of equipment to every birth. Usually we don't need it, but it's there for in case we do. We bring suture equipment and in case we needed to stitch somebody up, we have it. We have the lidocaine. We bring a catheterization kit. Is it likely to be needed? No, but if it were, we want to have it. So having a baby at home in an industrialized country is not a rebellion of Western medicine. It's a cautious use of Western medicine, that we're coming with the philosophy that the less we interfere, the better it will work. But if it doesn't work out perfectly, you have a qualified professional who's trained for a home setting and is not dependent on the infrastructure in a hospital. Can there be a situation where an emergency arises at birth, at home, despite the fact that nobody set the mother up for trouble. She wasn't given drugs during labor that could cause the heart rate to go down. She wasn't lying on her back. Can there be such a situation? Absolutely. And if a midwife, a qualified midwife who's in a home setting cannot competently deal with that emergency, it exceeds the bounds of the home setting, she will facilitate a timely seamless transfer to a hospital. Most transfers from home birth to hospital, most people who plan a home birth, birth uneventfully at home, if they were like risk appropriate for home birth. Of the transfers to the minority of people who do transfer to a hospital, most of them are not emergencies. Most of those women are people who decided they'd rather have an epidural or the labor is just very long. So time is not of the essence. In those rare circumstances where time is of the essence, yeah, a person really has to get to a hospital and the midwife would accompany them and stabilize them in route. The question becomes, does that mean that for those rare circumstances, every last healthy person should go have a baby in a hospital? And that research has been studied quite carefully. What would happen if we told an entire society have a baby in a hospital? Well, it's easy to get research about that because in our society, about 98% of people go and have a baby in a hospital. So there are about 4 million hospital deliveries every year in this country. So let's look at that research. And if it's okay, I wanted a screen share. What it would mean, what the risks would be associated with 
universal recommendation of hospitals, right? There are, there are risks in being in a hospital from the routine interventions that are used there that when people choosing a home birth should realize it's not about choosing where can I give birth that it will be risk-free. There is no risk-free birth anywhere. Life has risk. Home birth is a safer setting for a low-risk woman, even though it's not risk-free and even though there can be a situation that would have been better off had that woman been birthing in a hospital. But you have to think about the situations of women who birth in hospitals, low-risk women, where as a result of hospital routine interventions, ended up with an outcome that could have been prevented at home. And that needs to be weighed. So I did some screens. I prepared some resources in advance for everyone to see them with their own two eyes. I don't want anyone to trust us. It's not just from our clinical experience that we've been in the hospital and we've seen emergencies that could have been prevented with home birth care. I want everyone to read the data for themselves. One thing I wanna mention, you know, we're all midwives. We favor midwifery literature. And that some people may see as a limitation to this discussion, right? So I purposely chose resources that have nothing to do with the midwifery organizations. I chose the World Health Organization. I chose the CDC. I chose the New York State Department of Health website. Those are all un independent of midwifery. Okay, so I'm gonna screen share, just one second. Okay, does everyone see my, my screen? Okay. This is from the World Health Organization. They're stating that the ideal rate for cesarean sections is to be between 10 and 15%. As cesarean rates rise toward 10% across a population, and that means a broad population, that doesn't mean specifically low-risk women, that includes people who have triplets and people who have multiple medical conditions. As the C-section rate rises toward 10%, the number of maternal and newborn deaths decreases, right? C-sections can save people's lives. When the rate goes above 10%, there is no evidence that mortality rates improve. So a cesarean rate above 10% does not improve health outcomes as per the World Health Organization. Now take a look at what they're describing here. Cesarean rates are rising globally. In the United States right now, by the way, we have a 32.1% C-section rate as of 2021, according to the CDC. So that means we're more than triple what the ideal threshold should be. That means the majority of cesareans in this part of the world were unnecessary or preventable and were not life-saving or only became life-saving because of the interventions that, let, that were used during the labor process that set the person up for trouble and that that person needed to be rescued from it. So we're 300, we're more than 300% higher than what's ideal. And the World Health Organization is describing there are countries that are even worse off than the United States. There are countries, and this is just, unbelievable. Countries like the Caribbean, there's a 54% C-section rate. They're, they're projecting to have Western Asia, 50% is projected to be the cesarean rates there in the coming years. There are five countries right now, according to the World Health Organization, that have more C-sections than vaginal births. Dominican Republic, Brazil, Cyprus, Egypt, Turkey. So 
right? Cesarean sections now outnumber vaginal deliveries. So utilizing intervention cautiously and appropriately is where you have the best clinical outcomes. Overusing intervention is not the safest thing for people. And I find it quite interesting that one of the most common questions that Michal said she's been getting and is sent to us is, is quite aligned with one of the most common questions we get at consultations with prospective couples. People routinely ask us about safety. So let's take a look here. A hospital we said in the United States has on average more than triple the necessary and appropriate cesarean rates. Most maternal deaths, this I got from the Maternal Mortality Review and from New York State's Department of Health, the most recent one that I was able to pull was 2014. I wish I had something more current. What are like the real catastrophic events when people are worried about safety, those rare circumstances? Ironically, they're disproportionately, 60% of them, related to cesarean sections. Let's look at New York State for a minute. Um, Oh, I don't think it's going to let me click on it because this is blocking it. But I think the point that's self-evident from mainstream medical resources is that walking into a hospital is not risk-free. Walking into a hospital puts a person at risk for over-intervention. And that over-intervention, whether it's an unnecessary induction, whether it's an unnecessary augmentation with Pitocin use during labor, whether it's an unnecessary breaking of someone's water, it puts people at risk for emergencies they may not have ever had before they walked into the hospital system. And I think that's really important to balance when talking about home birth, that the alternative is not risk-free. Can I give that over Malki or Rahi to, I think Malki, you're up. If you can speak a little bit of the emergencies you've witnessed, what has led up to them and what you've seen of home birth so that people who are concerned of safety can recognize that the discussion of safety has to be more well-rounded. Thanks, Malki. Um, ah, okay. Um, sure, it's funny. I was gonna like interject and be like, I have something to say about it. a lot of people, um, <clears throat> just like in general in my life, not even professionally, they'll be like, oh, but I know someone. And then they launch into like a story about something horrible that happened. And they're like, they wouldn't have been in the hospital what would have happened? So it's hard because, you know, I, so I have a friend who came up to me the other day. She's like, someone told me a story. And, you know, I said to them, but what happened before that? And I was like, so proud. I'm like, yes, that's the question you need to ask as a midwife. You know, the question is like, so right before the doctor saved the baby's life and the mother's life and the whole family's life and like the country, right before that happened, what intervention was done? Ah, so she was you know, coerced into an induction at 39 weeks because she was pregnant and why should she continue her pregnancy? Because it's hot outside and being pregnant is tiring. So, you know, there's no risks to induction. So why not get induced? So she was induced. Then her water was broken at three centimeters. Then she had 15 vaginal exams. Then she had an infection. And then the baby's heart rate shockingly wasn't doing well because she was laying on her back with an epidural for 20 hours, hadn't moved in many hours. And then the doctor saved the baby's life by doing an emergency C-section. So it's like, not all emergencies are, you know, like um, you had said, not all emergencies are caused by intervention, but um, seven years on a labor and delivery unit that was very busy with a lot of um, everything going on. 
Um, and I definitely have to say the majority of the emergencies, and I've seen all every obstetric emergency emergency there is to see, I believe I've seen. Um, and majority of them, if you took like a few steps back and looked at what was done to the woman to interfere with the birth process, um, it was not like a spontaneous, like she walked into the hospital having an emergency. Like I, I can't, I can't even think of it like, a, like maybe a situation where she was sent from her doctor's office within an emergency, but like it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like it just, it's not a common thing that people spontaneously go into labor, a low risk woman with no health issues, her body starts to, you know, spontaneously release her baby. And then all of a sudden the sky is falling in and someone's going to save her life. It's so uncommon. Um, <clears throat> that being said, you know, there's specific things that as a practice, we have certain um, practices as a group of midwives, we have certain practices that we believe are very preventative of emergencies that, uh, not emergencies, they're very preventative of issues um, that we believe by avoiding certain interventions by protecting certain parts of the mother and the labor process and letting it unfold on its own without interference or checking up on things or just finding out where she's at. But like, but why, what difference is that going to make? So like Rocky was saying before, not interfering um, sometimes is the best preventive medicine, you know, the best prevention um, to the emergencies that other people's lives are being saved from. So like, you know, Yehuda said, we can't guarantee that an emergency wouldn't just happen, but with careful, you know, appropriate monitoring and appropriate care, um, we really can avoid going down certain paths that, you know, people end up. So a lot of people on consultation say, but what if I need an emergency C-section? And it's like, what would cause, you know, what would cause you to need an emergency C-section? Like, or, you know, what if the baby gets stuck? Okay. Did you try all different position changes? Like, you know, did you start pushing only when you felt like an insanely strong urge to bear down and release the baby? Like, or are you doing things because people are checking you routinely and telling you when to do things when your body doesn't feel it? Like, so, so many things that people are concerned about, which are very valid concerns, especially in our birth culture where everyone, you know, you're pregnant. Oh my gosh, I just heard a terrorizing story. Like so many pregnant women walk around and get bombarded with horrifying stories of other people's births for some reason. Like, does anyone walk up to someone and be like, you're pregnant? I just had the most beautiful birth. It was so peaceful and empowering. Like, when's the last time you saw that? But for some reason, the scary <laughs> stories, right? Michal's like, I do that. Michal, you're special. Um, but yeah, so I feel like our culture is also very like, so people show up with their first pregnancy and they come to, um, you know, they come to, a consultation and they have all these fears that like are have just been crammed into their brain so um they're valid and we're happy to address any specific ones someone put a chat what about the cord being around the kid's neck that's a variation of normal um we've had it many many times at home and the baby's heartbeat was perfect in labor and you know um everything was fine uh we just unwrap it when the baby's born um I believe Yehudas one time had it wrapped around like four or five times around the babies. Yeah, for sure. Three times. It's a variation of normal. Can that sometimes cause the baby's heartbeat to, um, you know, to fluctuate when during labor or during pushing? Yes. So, you know, there's things we can do to try to alleviate the stress on the baby. Um, and also it depends, you know, how, oh, so many good questions are popping up. It's hard to finish my sentence when I'm reading them. Um, I'm going to pass the buck here. Havrachi, do you want to address? um cord prolapse and what if someone's two weeks overdue i love that question we'll come back to that one because that's not an emergency um and sepsis we can talk about 
Oh, wow. Okay, good questions. Rochi, I'm passing the buck. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to just echo everything that Mafi said. And, you know, one of the main things I think that people talk about is, like, what if the baby's heartbeat just goes down, like, very quickly, very, you know, very rapidly, emergently. And we really don't see that at home so much, um, maybe because, you know, we're not using those that people don't have girls, um, people are moving around. Um, so it's very rare. And in general, study is, you know, is, you know, laboring, having position changes and things like that, it's prevented. And also in general, um, it's generally not this like emergency scenario where like the baby's doing like beautifully and the heartbeat is beautiful all of a sudden everything just kind of um, just like go downhill like immediately. It's more like a full process and that is like a situation where maybe we would consider that for if we were like monitoring this baby and we were trying different position changes in the room. I would have loved to hear, Rafi, what you were saying. I'm hoping your glitch gets resolved. I just want to share that I used to drive an old car and I was in the mechanic too often. And at a certain point I got fed up with trusting. So I started to drive a newer car. And one of the hardest parts of being at the mechanic was I knew that any maintenance and repair that the mechanic was recommending obviously increased his profits. And then I felt like I wanted to get a second opinion, but if my car wasn't driving, how can I get my car over to another mechanic to get a second opinion? Fee-for-service is the way mechanics are paid, where every item of intervention they offer increases their reimbursement. And that's exactly how hospitals are paid in the United States for the most part. And because the dominant reimbursement model in the United States is fee-for-service, it incentivizes intervention use. So when a person walks into an American hospital, basically your insurance card is taken and every IV, every medication, every intervention is coded for billed for and your insurance card gets billed like a credit card. So it's not such a shock that in a in that context of healthcare economics that we see an unnecessary use of overintervention. Like I want people to realize that when they're in a hospital, they should want to get a second opinion, not different than I wanted to get a second opinion when I was in the mechanic shop because there's the same incentive there. I also wanted to mention that people have asked us, like, what if my Wooders release? Will I need an induction? You know, one of the benefits of birthing outside the context of an institutionalized setting is that firstly, there's a higher ability for us to individualize care. We're not as tied to protocol as we would be if we were practicing in a hospital. But the guidelines related to clinical care for a home birth setting differ than they do in American hospital. And let's say you break your water in advance. That's like a typical example. About 10% of women release their water before going into labor. It's a variation of normal. American hospitals, there's active management. It means we recommend an induction in New York. Are there some hospitals that they wait 12 hours before inducing? Yeah. Are there hospitals where they'll wait 24 hours? some, but that's not what the actual research says. Like we, our guidelines are that if the fluid is clear, the baby is term, the heart rate is good. We could wait 96 hours without any increased risk for infection if we do zero vaginal exams. And I'm giving one small 
piece of how a healthy pregnancy that at the end of pregnancy has one variation of normal, just by birthing at home with a qualified home birth practice really can protect the person from an unnecessary medical induction and the cascade of intervention that can result from it. The induction rate right now in the United States is a little bit over 29%. Also, ladies, like the percentage of people who walk into a hospital and have a physiologic birth, one that's not interfered with and instinct led is a small minority. And that is the safest kind of birth for a low risk woman, typically. I wanna show you the data on are there benefits to home birth? Somebody has submitted. And this also, I'm gonna share my screen so that everyone can see it for themselves. First, I'll just summarize it. Home birth is a safer setting for a low risk woman in an industrialized country who gets prenatal care. It's not as safe as the hospital, it's safer. For the woman, it reduces interventions and risks from minor risks like tearing and needing like a, a more significant tear, like third or fourth degree, to major risks like blood transfusion, postpartum hemorrhage, and major surgery. So for the baby's perspective, the rates of perinatal death are very low for low-risk women at home, and they're comparable to that of low-risk women in a hospital setting. Rates of resuscitation for newborns born in hospitals is higher. And I want to screen share that. This data is Googleable. It's available to the public. If you put in the search terms, New York State best practices for community birth. It's gonna come up and it's the New York State Alliance for Licensed Midwives. It's our professional organization's data. And I wanna screen share that with everyone so that you can see how home birth is the safest setting. It's not just more peaceful and more dignified and more modest and centers control to women and helps women tap into their inner power and helps babies get born into an energy that's undisturbed and dim lighting and received, you know, in a gentle, unhurried, uninterrupted way. There's more to birth beyond safety, of course. Just having a safe birth is a low standard of care. I mean, safety is a basic in childbirth. Safeguarding the experience, the human component should also be acknowledged. But I want to just pull up the data on the safety so that people who are choosing a home birth and considering it can realize they're not putting their baby at risk because they want a comfortable experience. They're giving their baby a safe setting with, and they themselves are reducing risks to themselves. So right here it is. I'm going to screen share again. Birth in the community setting in New York State, and this is what the front page document looks like, New York State Association of Licensed Midwives, it's called NISUM, and these are the professional standards of care that we adhere to. This is a framework that determines who's risk appropriate for home birth, how many prenatal visits should we offer, when do we refer someone to a higher level of care. So this is a professional guidelines that set the standard of care for licensed midwives in the state of New York practicing in a birthing center or at home. 
So right here is where it is, page six. Studies examining the safety of planned home birth must meet specific criteria, right? You can't include people who were birthing triplets at home. You can't include people who had unintended out-of-hospital births, right? They have to have been people who received complete care throughout the childbearing cycle from qualified licensed providers with legal use of appropriate safety equipment and ready access to consultation with obstetrical providers. So when you're looking at high quality research that looks at low risk women who've gotten prenatal care with a licensed provider, this is what it shows. A meta-analysis of studies of planned home births show comparable neonatal outcomes and very low rates of intervention. Such studies show lower rates of electronic fetal monitoring, induction, augmentation, epidural, operative vaginal delivery, cesarean sections, episiotomies, labor dystocia, like labor that doesn't move along and postpartum hemorrhage. These are all the benefits of birthing at home, lower rates of all these complications. Newborns born at home have lower incidence of resuscitation. They're less likely a baby born at home in a planned risk appropriate home birth is less likely to need help to breathe compared to a baby being born in a hospital. And rates of perinatal death are very low and are comparable to those in hospital births. I think something also is really important to talk about. I just read to you data that was drawn from many, many thousands of planned home births and many, many thousands of planned hospital births for low-risk women. We don't make clinical recommendations from one horror story. Part of evidence-based practice is predicated on biostatistics and the science of epidemiology, which means you look at outcomes across large statistically significant populations. And that's where this home birth data is being drawn from. So to Malki's point, can there be a situation where one individual who is risk appropriate for home birth had an outcome that could have been prevented in the hospital? Yes, it needs to be balanced by what the risks would be going to a hospital across large samples of people. I want to mention that people asking us about safety for home birth are right for asking us. Safety so important. But isn't it curious that when people interview an OB, it's just much less likely that they're going to ask the OB their outcomes, how many people have ended up in an ICU, how many babies under your care, how many mothers under your care, were those outcomes preventable? There's like a cultural prejudice that if it's in a hospital, it's safe. And that's what we're here to awaken people to, that looking at data from the World Health Organization, from the CDC, from the New York State Department of Health website, it's obvious that bad outcomes are disproportionately related to intervention and that intervention in this part of the world is disproportionately overused relative to what would be considered safe. And I think that looking at statistically significant populations of people is the way to make sound, rational clinical recommendations, not by focusing on one specific incident. Um, I think what Rahi said in the beginning really describes home birth. Once you start going to home birth, like even professionally, it's very hard to ever go back to a, working in a hospital setting. And I've seen that 
with consumers as well. Women who've made the transition from hospital birth to home birth tend to not go back to the hospital. I think that once people get used to birthing on their own terms, where they're a host to the event, they're not the guest at their own birth, where they're not transferring to another setting in an intense part of labor, they're just staying put the entire time. It's hard to ever give that up. Like if you can just labor standing in your shower and have a professional come to your house instead of you needing to go out, like it's such a gift to be able to be risk appropriate for home birth. And that's a much broader discussion. One of the questions that have been submitted is how do you define home birth suitability? And that really varies. In New York State, it's defined one way. In other industrial areas, differently. Rahi, do you want to describe what would be considered risk appropriate for home birth and how we screen clients before we take them on and provide prenatal care? Yeah, we'll try again with volume, hopefully less choppy. Sorry about before. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Um, what I was saying before, just to go back to real quickly, is what I was saying is like when we're monitoring a baby's heartbeat, we very rarely see the heartbeat go down it, at home because we are using gravity, we're changing positions, we're not using Pitocin, we're not on an epidural, but even if a baby weren't not to be doing so well, generally speaking, it wouldn't be like this, this emergency situation where all of a sudden, like the baby's doing amazing and all of a sudden the heartbeat just drops. It would be like more of a progression where we're seeing things that are worrying us and in that situation, um, we would recommend transfer um, if we felt like this is something that we couldn't address at home. But again, that would be like a non-emergent transfer where we were trying to move things to, you know, before we feel like it gets to a point where we, you know, we're not comfortable at home anymore. Um, so home birth is considered safe for low-risk women. Um, so that is um, defined as women with, you know, no pre-existing health conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, um, usually not taking medication. I mean, we do have clients on medications, but usually, you know, depending what it is that they're taking, we, we talk about it um, in terms of um, the New York State guidelines, actually, um, someone had asked about like twin births and VBACs. Um, general, the official New York State home birth guidelines do not recommend having twins at home, do not recommend VBACs at home. However, um, some women and some midwives will choose to do so. Um, again, with what we call informed consent, which is an important aspect where you talk about risk and benefit and you make a decision if that's something that you're comfortable with. Um, and again, throughout the pregnancy, we'll be, we do prenatal visits like on the regular schedule of once a month, you know, for the first um, few months and after 28 weeks, every two to three weeks, and after 36 weeks, um, every week. And as visits really get to know our clients, um, and we want to really, you know, emotionally get to know them, know about their family because it's so important for their birth experience, but also we can talk about concerns and um, any issues that may come up. We monitor their blood pressure, we monitor for other symptoms, we listen to baby, and these are all ways that we can really screen people and um, see if they're still appropriate for home birth. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything I left out. Yeah. So those are the main the main factors. Like Naki said, a lot of things, you know, are avoided just by staying home. It doesn't mean every complication is avoided. And, you know, in our time, we have had complications at home. We've managed postpartum hemorrhages at home and we've managed newborn resuscitations at home. These things do happen. You have to have the skills, you know, to deal with them. And again, not knowing what happens, obviously there can be situations where these things cannot be managed at home. And that's when appropriate transfer is really, really important.
Um, and like you had us saying before about coming with supplies, like we are equipped to deal with emergencies at home because we carry medication that treats um, that treat hemorrhages. We carry, you know, oxygen and uh, you know, a mask for the baby in case there's a need for sustentation, suction, things like that. Um, we carry, you know, sutures if there's a need for suture. Um, I think those are the main. I think complications are things that people worry about at home. I think you had us want to say something. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Rachi, for that. I wanted to just address a few other questions that were submitted in advance to our discussion. One is, does insurance cover home birth? Yes, a lot of private insurance is covered, and in New York State, Medicaid covers home birth. So how to pick a qualified home birth midwife. And that's really important because not different than in any other batch of professionals, it matters that you have the right fit personality wise, that you're philosophically aligned and that you're choosing someone who's skilled and qualified. You ask pointed questions at an interview. You try to use your instincts. You can interview a few practices and speak to people who birth with the practice and then gathering all that information, you make an informed choice. I do wanna also mention that somebody had submitted a question, what are the benefits of home birth? And I love that question because it's not just about like it reduces unnecessary intervention and that it, it reduces complication rates. Like there are long-term benefits to a baby being born at home. Let's think about, right, we just were at a birth. The baby's born, we don't clamp the cord right away. The baby's cord remains pulsing and receiving that oxygenated blood from the placenta for however long that mother and baby want it. The baby has immediate skin-to-skin -skin contact. The baby's being born in the microbiome of a home the breastfeeding success rates are higher for home birth compared to hospital birth. The baby's not being exposed to Pitocin use during labor, right? It's an ACOG, mainstream medical guidelines that, that Pitocin use during labor is associated. They couldn't establish causation, but there's an associative relationship with autistic spectrum disorder, right? Like a baby's in a vulnerable stage of development in utero, any medication that's given during labor, you have to consider what are the subtler long-term side effects that are not easily measurable in the labor and delivery unit, right? Just because they're discharged home officially as uncomplicated, is there follow-up five, 10 years down the line to know this child's neurodevelopmental outcomes, to know this child's emotional intelligence, to know this bonding between mother and baby. So there's so many variables to home birth that cannot easily be quantified on quantitative research. And what I've really showed people here is quantitative research, not qualitative research. It doesn't speak of the human experience. So what are the benefits to home birth? How do you measure empowerment? How do you measure when a mother gives birth feeling that she was at the lead role to her birth? Like that's a benefit, right? Women matter, birth matters. We were at a birth where, you know, we got the call to come and we, 
you know, we called the client to let her know what our ETA is based on ways. We offered her, would you like our assistant who lives closer to your house and just a few minutes away head over before us? And she said, yeah, that would be reassuring. Our assistant headed over to her home. She listened to the baby's heartbeat before we got there. By the time I arrived, the mother was already in an intense zone of labor. And I just slipped into the bathroom completely silently to not interrupt her instinct as she continued to labor in the shower with hot water pressure on her back to give her relief in a standing position where gravity's helping her baby come down. And she was able to birth her baby right there, right by her preference. <laughs> like, do I want to say that she possibly would have had a medical induction in a hospital? Possibly, just based on the gestational length. So just by choosing a home birth, she was like the embodiment of that literature I just showed you that it reduces induction rates. But aside from the safety component, it's like she's being tucked into her own bed, owning an experience where she was honored like the queen. And I want women to realize that you deserve that. Birth is not a medical procedure. Birth is a phys inherently a physiologic process. And when it's honored that way, in most situations, it can and should be that. And to be able to welcome a new family member into your home where the older children are not separated by their mother for a day or two, their mother never left. They get to greet their new sibling in their mother's bed the next morning. Like, there's a seamlessness to that. There's a gentleness to that. There's a, there, that's, how, that's how it was designed to be. That's how the natural process is, that it should be part of the routine of life birth. It's countercultural. We're not in the Netherlands where about 15% of people give birth at home. We're in the United States where less than 2% of you know, the population gives birth at home. And if you're interested in having a home birth, I would recommend, firstly, people could watch a documentary, The Business of Being Born. And I'd recommend surrounding yourself by a community of other like-minded women who themselves have given birth peacefully and powerfully. Are there any questions? Oh, somebody asked, can you do a, uh, um, somebody's asking about ultrasound. There, by New York State's home birth guidelines, we're not, I'm not familiar of any specific requirement to have an anatomy scan in order to have a home birth, just so you should know that. Um, I mean, it's a recommended part of prenatal care to have an anatomy scan, but I'm not familiar with any guideline saying that somebody who doesn't have one is disqualified from home birth. Um, can we give a blood transfusion at home? No, but I have to say, I mean, Baruch Hashem, we've been part of a, a busy practice uh, you know, we've never had to transfer a mother to a hospital for a hemorrhage. One of the benefits of hemorrhage, of, of home birth, is reduced likelihood of a hemorrhage. Yes, a hemorrhage can still happen at home. Yes, we are prepared and qualified to treat that at home. If a person were to hemorrhage to the point that they required a blood transfusion, that would necessitate a transfer to a hospital because we don't come with a blood bank. But thankfully, that is rare. And thankfully, we've never had to do that. Um, but it, it could happen, like I said. Someone could be transferred for that. It's just being at home is going to be protective in the first place. Um, 
any other questions that we think we should um any other questions yeah. that Michal had, um Michal had asked me to address some of the questions um sure. so i'll i'll hop on um one of them was um meconium aspiration um so that's a great question um for people who don't know what meconium is Meconium is the first stool that the baby passes. Um, and typically babies pass the first stool after they're born. Um, it's like a thick black tarry stool. Sometimes babies pass meconium inside um, and there's different reasons why they do that. Sometimes babies do that just because they're, you know, mature. So at a certain point they like release their stool. Um, and sometimes babies do it if they they have a moment of um, distress, um, which is usually like, let's say, um, you know, uh, interruption to the uh, blood flow in the cord. So they're not getting oxygenated for a second and they have like this physical stress response and it releases um, and they release stool into the water. So when a woman's water releases, the typical color that it is, is like a clearish color. Sometimes it's pinkish if they're having, um, you know, surges that are causing dilation and there's a little bit of blood there. So um, that that's a normal color. If it's any, you know, green, brown, um, yellow, those things um, indicate that the baby passed meconium at some point. Now there's no way to know in labor when you're looking at that fluid, um, if the baby, you know, if it was a recent, there's, there's ways to evaluate if it was more recent or less recent, but that doesn't necessarily give providers information as to like, will this baby come out and cry and breathe totally fine? Or will this baby need a little extra assistance clearing the airway um, and breathing? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, depending on the consistency of the meconium, depending where the woman is in her labor progress, depending on you know if it's a first baby or not her first baby, depends on so many different factors. There's no textbook answer, um, depends on the consistency of the fluid, the color of the fluid. Um, so it's an evaluation. This is, and this is why, you know, as providers, even though like you had said earlier, like we believe that most birth will unfold uncomplicated and we, you know, you don't need us, but it's why I'm not running around telling everyone you should just birth on your own in a field. You don't, you don't need me at all because sometimes we do step in and provide, you know, potentially life-saving intervention. So, um, you know, there are times when a baby is born with meconium that they come out screaming and breathing just fine. And there are times just like when there's no meconium that babies come out and they need a little extra help. So we suction out their airway. Um, and sometimes we have to give a couple breaths to stimulate them to start breathing. Um, if there was ever a concern, there's something called that transition period where a baby is transitioning from being inside um, and having all the oxygen come through their umbilical cord and all their nutrients to being outside and having to breathe now. And some babies transition really well. And within a matter of minutes, they're totally adjusted to the outside world. They transition much, um, the evidence shows they transition much much more efficiently and smoothly when they're skin to skin with their mother for many reasons. Um, it helps keep their blood sugar stable because it helps keep their blood temperature stable and there's that safety level and familiarity. They recognize the smells and the sounds. Um, but some babies don't, you know, have some trouble with the transition period. And if as midwives, you know, we're there, it's not like the baby comes out and then we're like, you did great, see ya. So we're there, we're monitoring in the, in the postpartum period for the, you know, at least a few hours. Um, and if there's a concern that the baby's not transitioning well, um, and that we have a concern that their lungs, you know, might have meconium in them, they might have breathed in the meconium. And, um, you know, there's an issue we have, um, you know, equipment to monitor babies' oxygen sets 
saturation so we can check and see, are they getting oxygen? Are their lungs working enough to get oxygen all the way down to their hands and feet? Um, you know, we can monitor, you know, with our stethoscope, with our eyes, what are we seeing? What, you know, what, what does the baby look like? And if we had a true concern that the baby wasn't transitioning well and we needed to transfer, then we would initiate a transfer. The next question that Michal wanted me to address was transfers. So that kind of segues right in. If we ever feel that a mother or baby or the couplet would need to be transferred, um, it depends on a lot of things, how that what that transfer would look like. Is it an emergency that it's like, you know, you have to treat it like any other emergency. You just stop what you're doing and you call, you know, emergency services to take you to the closest place where they can help you. Um, if it's an emergency situation, then that's what we would do. Baruch Hashem, our practice has never had to do that. Um, I hope we never have to do it. Um, but if, you know, if we would have to, that's what we would do. Um, if it's a situation where, you know, we need to get further evaluation, but it's not an emergency, then there's a little more of a discussion of where should we go? Where's the best place for this woman? So what's the reason we're transferring and where's the best place to address that reason? Um, so that would be, you know, a discussion we would have with the client. We would present her with the best options that we feel and why, and then we would, you know, facilitate the transfer together. We've had um, where either in pregnancy, someone risked out of care and had to go to the hospital for the birth or in labor where someone had to be transferred again, very, very uncommon in our practice, thank God. But when it did happen, one of the midwives, one or more of the midwives accompanied the woman to the hospital and stayed with her as long as we were allowed to. Um, so, you know, it's not like we would just drop a client off at the front door and say, good luck. Um, you know, obviously with COVID, there's restrictions and, you know, um, only certain amount of people are allowed in. So it's up to the woman, whether she wants to, you know, have her midwife or her mother or her husband or whoever. But if we're allowed in, of course, we're there to support our client in the supportive role. Obviously, we're not in the midwife role anymore. We don't have privileges in hospitals um, so that we're not encumbered by their policies and procedures. But, um, you know, on the way in, we call in, we speak to the the you know, person who's in charge, who's there, we explain who we are, that we're coming in, that this is the situation, this is the care that we're, you know, that we need. So it's not like we're just showing up at the front door and all of a sudden they have to address it. There's, they're, you know, they're there and they're waiting for us and they're ready and they know we're coming. So it's a very seamless, professional, um, you know, transfer of care from one place to another. Um, what else did you ask me to answer, Michal? Oh, Yohannes wants to, do you want to show the birth bag? Did I see your birth yeah, bag? Yeah, I'll ask you to show the birth bag. I'm so happy to. It is so heavy. But um, <laughs> how do we carry this, ladies, up all those steps? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I want to show up on our birth bag. And the other thing I was going to mention, people asked about pain relief. I think that's such a terrific question because one of the things that drives people to hospitals, of course, is epidurals. You can't get an epidural at home. The medications pose risk both to mother and baby that require ready access to an operating room. It would not be considered risk appropriate to be in a home setting taking such risks with exposure to those drugs. So an epidural, you know, is the draw to hospital for people. And I want to make the point in saying... You're not going to be lying on your back in your home. You're not going to be on a continuous electronic fetal monitor in your home. You're going to be upright and mobile and can get into the water and you can have, you could take a hypnobirthing class and you can have a great doula there counter pressuring your back. You can have a really supportive midwife. Like it's, 
it's such a different labor experience that comparing the intensity of labor in a environment that's not your own and where you don't have as much space in a hospital, it's such a different experience at home. Like we've never been in a situation where somebody wanted us to go to a hospital with them just to get an epidural, not a single mother. I mean, if somebody ever wanted it, you always could get it. Every hospital federally in the United States on a, is required to accept a laboring woman into their care. So if somebody made the decision in the end, they want to get an epidural, you could always go. It doesn't preclude you. And, you know, our mothers who birth with epidurals, by the way, an epidural is a risk if it will even work, right? There are people who get epidurals and it doesn't effectively numb them. And then it's like, they're really in a tough spot because they're on a bed and they're less mobilized. But let's say even the people who've gotten effective epidurals, we have clients like that who birth at home and I know they're only planning to birth at home in the future. So I think that that's really reassuring that they had a really positive experience. So let's go through, there's a certain euphoria and a certain hormonal milieu of birth that when you don't numb the sensations and you don't interfere with the hormonal process, it's unleashed in a different way after a birth. And also you have to consider what are, you know, what are your, what are your goals of the birth? Is your goal to be very connected to the process and be in control as much as possible of your experience and have those sensations of labor guide you into a productive position for birth and to listen to your instincts in birth so you can birth by your own intuition and by your own bodily cues. If you want that kind of experience, numbing yourself is not going to be able to accomplish that because that, that those surges, those contractions encourage the mother to take certain positions, breathe certain ways that help facilitate her birth to unfold. So there's so much value to the sensations of labor. This is my birth bag. Thanks to Rachi, we bought this special kind of, this is what it looks like, a special kind of suitcase. My oxygen tank is in my car. So I have an oxygen tank as well, but it's in my car. And this is the first pocket of my birth bag. And this is the inside. So I'm gonna go through it item by item. We have lubricant. We don't do routinely, we don't routinely check people for how dilated they are. We do it when somebody asks us and wants it, or if we think it will benefit them, then we'll recommend it. There's time and place for it, but not, we don't do it routinely. And so I, we have lubricant for that. Here we have saline flushes for IV. If we were giving a medication IV and needed to flush it. Here we have misoprostol, which is a hemorrhage medication, an anti-hemorrhage medication. Right here is our laceration tray. It's sterile and all sealed so that if somebody needed to be stitched, we have it. This is a sterile speculum so that if someone, we weren't sure if someone's fluid release and we needed to do an assessment for whatever reason, that's what we would use so that we don't commonly use that. This is a urethral catheterization kit, also not routinely used, but in the event of a hemorrhage or, and that it was necessary, not all hemorrhages, you need to catheterize, but if necessary, we would have it. 
This is starter IV equipment to start an IV. This is a sharp box so that we can properly dispose of any needle. This is a light that I wear at my head, on my head. So if we're checking for someone if they tore, we can have good visualizations. Sometimes we'll wear it at the birth if it's a darker room. These are tubes, blood tubes, because if somebody has RH negative and we want to test the baby's blood type, we take from the cord at the end and we send it off to the lab so that if they're going to want or need Rogam, we have the results back in time to give them the medication within the ideal 72-hour time limit. You can take Rogam at beyond 72 hours, but it's optimal to do it within 72 hours. By the way, to clarify about VBAC, you know, a number of practices in New York City do attend VBACs. Someone who's had, this is a New York State's home birth guideline, someone who's had a history of vaginal birth and cesarean has better outcomes across all outcome measures than a low-risk first-time mother. So there's different types of VBAC. There's VBAC for people who've previously had a vaginal birth. There's VBAC for people who have had a, a VBAC already. And then there's VBAC for people who have never had a vaginal birth and have not had a VBAC, meaning they've never had a vaginal birth prior to the cesarean or after the cesarean. New York State's guidelines say that they should make a decision based on sheer decision-making and informed consent where they're weighing the risk benefits of being home versus the risk benefits of being in a hospital. So it's more of like the gray area of home birth. Twins is not within New York State's home birth guidelines. There are industrialized countries that do support twins births at home. And on the basis that it is, it reduces maternal morbidity. It's safer for the mother to birth at home, the twins, but it does increase risks to the twins, the babies themselves. New York State does not support it. There are home birth practices in New York where a person can have a twin's home birth. Much like Rahi said, it's sheer decision-making. You know, those people are making their own, you know, choice. Our practice does not attend twins. Um, someone asked us what would happen if we had a surprise twin at home. I mean, right? Not too common. But this is blue cohosh. This is for someone who's trying to get into labor. It's an herb that can be beneficial. This is homeopathic. Colophylum, same, same usefulness. This is the erythromycin ointment for somebody who wants antibiotics in the eyes. This is a, this is cefazolin. This is antibiotics for somebody with GBS positive who would want to be treated with antibiotics and, is, and isn't getting the penicillin. We carry the other medication. We carry both penicillin and cefazolin. Okay. This is the oral vitamin K for somebody who doesn't want to give the IM vitamin K, the shot of vitamin K, and is declining that and wants to give something. So that's oral vitamin K. These are syringes so that if somebody needed a shot of Pitocin or a shot of Methergen, we're able to draw up those medications and administer them. Pitocin and Methergen are both meds that we carry as part of postpartum hemorrhage management. We don't give Pitocin during labor in a home setting. That requires ready access to an operating room. That requires continuous electronic fetal monitoring. It would be it, it wouldn't be risk appropriate to give Pitocin in a home setting. It requires 
ready access to the infrastructure in a hospital because it poses risks to both mother and baby. Pitocin given postpartum is within the standard of care for home birth. So I just wanna make that distinction. We carry postpartum, we carry Pitocin for postpartum use. This is a warming blanket so that if we were doing a neonatal resuscitation, like helping a baby breathe, we can keep the baby warm. This is a connector piece for, an, for oxygen. If God forbid we had to give a baby oxygen and if we were in that situation, we would be transferring to a hospital. But if we had like, meaning if we had to give chest compressions and an oxygen um, as part of the resuscitation, we'd be transferring. So second. Um, but it would be like given as, as we're waiting to transfer, you know, we bring it as an emergency equipment. I've never had to give a baby oxygen at home. One second. Okay. Rachi Amalki helped organize this bag. So <laughs> every time we go to a birth, we like, you know, unpack some of it. So it gets unpacked and repacked routinely. I'm just going to take out some more of the stuff. Well, I have a scale in here because we weigh the baby afterward. We do the complete newborn evaluation. As Malki said, neonatology up to 28 days of life for a healthy baby is within our scope of practice. People do not need to bring a pediatrician to the birth. You don't have to go to a pediatrician right after the birth. We do the newborn evaluation. So I also have a tape measure in my bag so I can measure the baby's length, baby's head circumference, and baby's chest circumference. This is a pulse ox for the mother if we wanted. Remember, most births, we don't need the stuff in our bags, but we bring it to every birth because we take our responsibility for those rare situations very, very seriously. And our team routinely has emergency drills so that our responses for those rare emergencies can be seamless with people who each team member has a delegated role and our skills can flow without delay. So that's why we have routine emergency drills. I think we have one scheduled for this Thursday. This is lactated ringers for an IV. Are we all, are, how's the bag doing? I just want to answer a few more questions before I have to go. <laughs> sure, this is a scale. Yeah, go for it, Malky. Okay, I don't want to interrupt your bag demo. Um, so a couple questions, a bunch of people were asking about being past the due date, um, like how we would handle that. It's a great question. Something I'm personally very passionate about. Um, first of all, we're very careful to ensure that we're setting an appropriate due date. We have a lot of mothers who come to us and say they're always many weeks overdue. Someone, you know, someone might say I'm always three weeks overdue. My babies are seven pounds. That's so unlikely that you're actually overdue that it's just much more likely that the dating needed to be adjusted based on your cycle length and things like that. So um, we're very cautious when we sit down for the first visit or even sometimes on the consultation, we're going through like cycle lengths and, you know, estimated dates of conception, things like that. So we try to set the due date at a very appropriate time. I've had many women who came who transferred from doctors and said that the doctor gave them a due date based on an ultrasound. And they said it was physically impossible for them to have conceived when the doctor told them that they did based on their due date because they're like I, I literally like it, it's not possible so um you know we, the hallmark of midwifery care is we listen to our clients and share decision making and we come up with a due date together that makes sense um, based on someone's history 
Um, and then that being said, if someone is overdue at 41 weeks, you know, the standard of care recommendation is to go for an ultrasound, a biophysical profile to check on the baby, um, make sure that the fluid level is fine, make sure that the baby's practice breathing and moving that we bring up, um, you know, and we have a discussion with the mother about that. Um, and then at 42 weeks, if someone's still pregnant, we would just recommend the same thing, another ultrasound. Um, you know, are there people who decline all ultrasound in pregnancy? Sure, that's their choice. We discuss the risks, benefits, um, you know, what the, what the advantage is to having the ultrasound disadvantages um, at 41 weeks 42 weeks and they're ready to get the baby out and they're you know we've had women who came and they're like I'm done being pregnant I would like you to help me evict this child um so there's you know natural gentle things that we can do to try to help a baby to move out so that's not something that we would necessarily recommend um you know and it's not necessarily something that we think is the best but if that's what someone wants we're happy to help you do that you know in a safe way so that's the um like the you know um nutshell version of being past your due date um <clears throat> cord presentation someone brought up if you're referring to a funic presentation where the the sac is intact but between the babies and the opening is a cord um i've actually um been in that situation a couple times in the hospital it's very rare i don't know the exact statistic of it but it's it's very rare um, and in that situation when a woman is having a surge it's going to press on the cord and it's going to cut off the blood flow to the baby during the uh, contraction and that is monitorable, monitorable, if that's a word, on um, the Doppler. So when we're when we're at a woman's labor, we're we're listening according to the evidence every 30 minutes, um, like you had said earlier, during um, active labor, and then every 15 minutes during pushing for a low-risk woman. And that's mainstream medical literature. That's not midwifery literature. That's the you know, mainstream research says continuous fetal monitoring during labor increases risk of C-section and increases the rates of C-section and doesn't save babies. So um, intermittent fetal monitoring for a low-risk woman who doesn't have an epidural, who's not on a Pitocin, who's not being induced, um, is appropriate and it's it's just as safe as the continuous and it saves mothers from unnecessary surgery. Um, so if you're listening and there is that cord if there's that funic presentation that you know someone's concerned about, um, the heart rate would dip and it would be unfixable. So even with position changes, even with IV fluids, we would do everything we could to fix it, um, you know, safely at home. But if we couldn't fix it, that would be someone that we would transfer to the hospital. Um, so yeah, and you can you can you can feel it. We we don't do exam oh, contraction. Likely we would do an exam, I would imagine, unless there was a really strong reason not to, to check how long she is and see if she's remote from delivery or if we can you know expedite delivery um in the home setting safely and feel the cord there. So if that's what someone's asking, in terms of cord prolapse, which we discussed earlier, it's extraordinarily unlikely that that would happen. Um, an indication for yeah. ladies, we're gonna have to go eat because we're on call tonight. So we have to have an early night in case we get invited over to somebody's home. So it's been a pleasure. And I want to thank, firstly, Malki and Rachi for their dedicated time and their extraordinary skills and gentle grace that they bring to every birth. I'm so lucky to attend birth with you. Each of you have taught me so much about midwifery and about birth in general. But I want to also thank each of you for joining. And I'm hoping that it was enlightening. And thank you so much, Rocky, for that wrap up that it's not risk free. It's appropriate for the people who want it and are risk appropriate for it and that they should be supported in their choice and that options are available. And if they're okay, Michal, if we call it a night tonight. Okay. I hope this was really, really helpful. Malki, do you want to share one last bit?
Sure. Um, I would, I, do I have anything to say? I think that, <clears throat> that there was a lot of stuff on the chat. I can't even keep up. So I'm trying to like keep up with this and the chat at the same time. I guess my message would be that, um, home, I don't know, home birth. It, it's, it's just, it's so special. It's so beautiful. And anyone who is interested, I encourage you to read more. I encourage you to learn more. I encourage you to ask questions. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. It was a pleasure speaking about it tonight. And, um, I just, I think that it's an honor to be a part of providing really, really good care to people in a really, really gentle way. Um, having worked in a hospital system for a lot of years, I saw a lot of other types of care being offered to people in other types of ways. So it's something that we're very passionate about because we've seen the other side of things and we really believe in what we do, which I know you can tell from the, you know, the way we were talking tonight. So thank you so much, Mika. It was really a pleasure. My and pleasure. We're able to give people our information if they wanted to contact us. Is that something I don't know. If yes, go for it. Go for it. Oh, I can give our phone number. I'll put it on the chat. Um, our office Wait. number, if anyone. Um, if you're up for sharing it out loud. Oh, sure, sure. I'll say it no problem. Our office number is 646-907-5515, extension 2. Um, Adele is our fantastic secretary who's happy to answer questions. If people want to have a consultation with us, um, if they're considering using us and they have specific questions to themselves, um, you know, or to their birth or their pregnancy, we're happy to answer questions. Like you can see, we're an open book. We're not hiding anything. We're not, make, you know, pretending anything. Um, so yeah, we're always happy to talk with people about birth. Thank you so much. Awesome, my pleasure. Um, if I can just thank you guys and on behalf of the entire Lumi Chassidus and all the amazing women that are gonna gain so much live now and Bessus Hashem in, in the future with the recording. Awesome, thank you so, so much. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight and Mirza Hashem to be continued. Thank you, have a good night, everybody. Bye.